Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host for White House Chronicle. Thank you for joining us. With Hurricane Henri having torn up the east coast of the United States and terrible, deadly flooding in Tennessee, utility resilience, the ability to get the power back on, has become a front burner issue. To look at it, I have a panel of three experts today and I'm delighted to introduce them to you now. They are Paula Gold-Williams, President and CEO of CPS Energy, the municipally owned gas and electric utility in San Antonio, Texas. Clinton Vince, Chair of the US Energy Practice of Dentons, the world's largest law firm. And Rod Cookrow, a distinguished freelance energy journalist. Welcome all. And I'll start with Paula. Paula, what does resilience mean to you? All right. Well, good morning, Llewellyn. And uh, I appreciate the question. It comes up all the time. I think your opening comments were really on point. It's the ability for systems to come back quickly. Um, what we really experienced here in Texas was we had to bring systems down because of the storm. And overall, that bad weather caused us to have outages. But we also had equipment failure, just all types of issues. Uri, Uri, we're talking about URI, the big storm. Storm URI, yes, storm URI. Where, where Texas was basically blacked out for five incredible, terrible days. Five incredible, terrible days. Um, yeah, look, I think right now, URI becomes just kind of a natural thing that we talk about here in Texas. It, it shook us at our core. And uh, many, many people were devastated by this. But the problem was the concern. People get used to being able to hit their light switch and they know that it comes on, but it, it tested the confidence that, that the average citizen has in the utility systems because systems didn't come right back on. They, there were a lot of complications. So resilience is that, that ability to create a continuation that really isn't disruptive to people's lives. Rod, you have been writing about resilience and you have a pretty good understanding of what industry-wide is meant by it. How do you see it? Well, good morning, Llewellyn, and thank you for having me on. Um, it's always been a core value of any company that provides power uh, because obviously you want to be able to restore that power as quickly as possible and keep customers satisfied. But in the past, I'd say 10 to 20 years, resilience has come to have a sort of higher value uh, in the vocabulary of the utility sector and, and among regulators. Um, and I think that's because they needed an easy way to explain uh, to the public and to regulators in particular, uh, what it would take to actually accomplish resilience. It's kind of a squishy term as you alluded to in your opening. Um, and, and what I would point to is that starting with the attacks of September 11th, followed by the Northeast blackout in 2003, which is an equipment failure essentially. And then Hurricane Katrina, which showed what devastating weather it could do to the grid. Those three events led to Congress passing the Energy Policy Act and sort of writing into law uh, a resilience regime that required mandatory standards be followed by utilities so that when the power goes out, they would have to restore it under certain conditions in a certain time frame, or face um, some very hefty fines. So resilience has in some ways, in my view, become a way for the industry to not just justify, but persuade regulators to let them spend billions of dollars to improve the quality of the grid so that if there is a problem from terrorism, from weather, from equipment failure, they can get the power back on as quickly as possible. 
Well, we're looking at some very recent excessive weather. Uh, Trent, how do you see all this? I commend you for focusing on this topic. I think resilience is the most important word uh, for the energy industry and beyond for the next decade. And um, to me, resilience is about what does not happen. You, it, it has to do, I've seen it defined uh, as the ability to reduce the magnitude and duration of disruptive events. And, um, you know, over the past two years, as Rod was outlining uh, the prior history, over the last two years, we've had really what, what we are calling the four C's, uh, COVID, climate, cyber, and crisis. In terms of COVID, we have the resurgence now of the Delta variant. Climate, we've had everything from wildfires in the West to drought, flooding, and uh, extreme weather. You mentioned the Texas storm, winter storm, uh, was a massive market failure where there was not enough resilient preparation for extreme weather. Then you look at cyber, we've had um, disruption of the grid and individual entities, everything from Russian hacking to uh, the colonial pipeline uh, disruption to city malware attacks and nation state attacks continuously on the grid. And then uh, crisis, of course, is manifested in economic and uh, social unrest and disruption. And uh, I think the key point now is that we have to stop being surprised by crises and really begin preparing for them. Paula, well, uh, to bolster your resilience, uh, your ability to respond, do you need uh, greater regulation? Do you need greater authority from regulatory bodies? Um, you know, I, uh, I appreciate Rod's comment and that question. I do think it's important that the, the government, particularly at the federal level, but, but also at the state levels, to really get involved in these, these issues around energy and the, and the problems that we have. So do we need it? Yeah, absolutely we need it. I, I do want to highlight, though, that um, part of the challenge that we have is, you know, the world is fast-paced. We're used to information in seconds. We, we're we're um, a technology-connected uh, world now. And um, in many ways, the energy technology that's available to us really isn't meant to currently fit all the gaps. And, and in particular, um, part of it is coming back quickly. I mean, that's important. And, and as, as you know, Clint mentioned, reducing that duration. Well, you could still reduce that duration, come back quickly. But one of the problems with the technology that we have is then you have to make sure that it extends through that event, whatever's happening. And the real problem with Storm Uri is it went on for five days. And as we look at new technologies, particularly those that we also want to make sure are climate friendly, don't have emissions, though that technology doesn't necessarily have the duration that we need to also get us through those events. So we need we need regulators and, and the government to understand we also need help investing in new technologies, bringing them along, 
I mean, we need, I mean, this is a billion, you know, multiple billions of dollar problem that individual utilities can't solve by themselves. So, so it's not just mandating performance, it's really realizing at the core, the technology doesn't exist in the right form to make sure that citizens across the U.S. are covered and can have power when they need it. What sort of uh, technological evolution are you hoping to see, Paula? You know, you, you might talk about this from time to time. I mean, I would say, again, like the, the holy grail is probably hydrogen uh, because, you know, in, in fully mature way, it should be able to perform like a baseload uh, generation where you can actually just run the plant practically all year long, except for planned outages. But this is exactly the, the issue. It hasn't come along yet. And when you're early in the development of technology, the price is high and it's very difficult to be able to compartmentalize what you need. I mean, we need a partnership with the federal government, but we're looking at other things. What can we do um, compressed air? What can we do with from uh, flow batteries? There, there are different types of batteries. It doesn't have to be- You're, you're, talking, about, you're talking about storage. Uh, I'm talking about the ability to store batteries, I mean, store power as well. And that's that's what's important so that you can fill in that gap when there's a problem with the storm, a problem with your line, that you can go ahead and get that power from an alternate source. So, you know, there, there are a lot of things out there, but they still don't necessarily all have the duration that we needed for Storm Yuri, five days of being out uh, in some cases. And they're, or they're too expensive and, and there's a real affordability issue for, for, the, for the whole world to solve. Um, Glenn, to the same question, uh, well, is more regulation needed in order to allow the utilities to do what they need to do? More regulation, more funding and infrastructure. The new uh, uh, bipartisan infrastructure bill will have, I think, 60 to $70 billion at least for different resilient measures such as grid modernization, transmission enhancement, uh, cyber is a big deal now where we need massive investment. Uh, you and uh, Paul are familiar with the Anterix company, which is uh, creating private LTE networks for utilities that would create an air gap between commercial carriers and the utility zone grid. Things like that are gonna require investment of money. Paula uh, outlined beautifully, I thought, uh, we need, with the threat of climate, we have to really accelerate our efforts toward decarbonization. We have to do that without losing resilience, and that's a huge challenge for us now, both regulatory and investment. I think Paula indicated that right now, long-term storage, battery storage usually has a duration of maybe four hours on average. We need the development of technology to really extend the duration of uh, energy storage so that it can back up um, renewables and other intermittent resources. And Rod, how do you see this? Do you think more regulation so that utilities can be encouraged to improve their resilience through the expenditure of more money? I'm not sure that more regulation is necessarily needed. I think what's needed is more understanding among regulators, both at the federal and state level, particularly the state level, of what challenges are being faced by the, the industry that, that Paul is, is, a, is a leader in and that Clint works closely with, and that is how to keep the lights on as the 
entire electricity sector transitions into something that we're not sure how it's going to end up looking in 15 or 20 years. Um, I mean, one of the one of the uh, one of the sad uh, data points about state regulators, and every state has a commission of some size, three to six or seven people, is that each year that goes by in, in the past decade, uh, the average state regulator has a tenure of under two years. So they really have no experience uh, with even the events of things like Hurricane Katrina. Um, and understanding what's happened since then or what happened with the clean power plan under President Obama and why the transition's occurring. So I think what's needed is greater understanding and then a willingness to allow ratepayers to compensate companies for making the investments that both Clint and Paul have outlined are needed. I, I want to talk about one other thing though and throw and get maybe get their opinion on this. There's a new wild card in resilience and it's not has to do with electricity per se, it has to do with natural gas. Last week, the North American Electric Reliability Corporation issued a risk assessment that warned that the interdependence between the power companies and the natural gas providers um, has posed some challenges because electric companies are by and large very highly regulated and natural gas industry as a national industry is not regulated. Uh, the good thing is that natural gas is replacing coal. So you have less carbon in the atmosphere, but it's a just-in-time fuel, and as, as Clint pointed out, there was recently a hack of a major pipeline system, uh, which if that gas had been needed during a crisis, say a very cold winter day, for example, uh, it might not have been available. So there has to be more now uh, thought about bringing the natural gas industry into the resilience discussion uh, with the electric sector, and that's going to be a challenge because the gas industry doesn't want to be regulated, frankly. The gas industry played a large part in the uh, crisis in Texas, Paula, um, would it have been better if they'd been regulated, if they had been obliged to reach the same standards of resilience as uh, the electric side? Absolutely, and without question. Um, I mean, Rod, you know, you're, you're focused on the exact right thing. Um, for years, and even today, and, uh, I really have believed that with the abundance of this natural resource, particularly shell gas, uh, that was a game changer. It really changed the pricing of the commodity and it, and it and really has kept the prices uh, low for a very long time. But but we are disconnected from as, as a utility from the actual process of extracting the natural gas uh, from the ground and the pipeline process. You're and you're right. They have they have very little um, regulation and for them, a supply and demand uh, economy like everyone, but when what they need is they need to be able to feel the ability of the supply being constrained. So they don't have passion about it. I'm sorry. I mean, that's that's my basic belief. Um, they're, they're not committed to get additional regulation for the greater good. People have supply available to the utilities so that we can generate energy. And um, they're pretty resistant. We've even through Storm Uri, what we've seen is that they've made a major effort to be excluded, but that that is kind of uh, nearsighted. Uh, if we can't solve the supply issue, no matter what happens, uh, utilities won't be able to generate power. So absolutely, we need we need them to join us, to partner, to solve their supply chain issues, and realize that this can be the the difference in in people surviving through a crisis event. So it's a tremendously complicated issue. This is why we are actually suing. Um, I, we're one of the one of the few that have been fighting this from the very beginning. We have seen complete systemic failure at ERCOT. 
the design was intended to also make sure let's that back, uh, Paula, let's back up a little bit. Okay. You're seeing the gas industry over the failure to supply during URI and uh, ERCOT is the electric grid of Texas. Yes. The system. The, right, the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, which is actually the grid operator, and we're suing them because they had systemic failure. They saw the crisis at the at the what was happening in the gas industry. They were already ramping up their prices before the core of the storm that hit. There was no communication at the regulatory level. Um, people were just letting things happen, and then the natural gas suppliers said, hey, we have supply issues, and it's, it was interesting, and they said, we're having supply issues because there's no power. Um, they didn't have backup systems in, at the extraction points. They didn't have uh, warming along their lines at pivotal points. Uh, they didn't, they, they actually just weren't set up for this and still aren't today compelled to fix those problems. And again, if we can't get the, the fuel, then we can't produce power. Uh, Clint, uh, do you feel that the, that you've got two different systems in collision here? You have the gas industry acting as a commodity supplier. We grow the onions. If you need onions and we have them, you buy them. If we don't have onions, it's your problem. Eat, cook something different. Uh, the classic commodity supply issue, but we are treating them as a public service, not as a commodity, the gas producers. Uh, how do you see that? Well, I think that Paula and Rod have just really nailed a huge systemic problem in the United States for resilience, and particularly uh, Texas was a poster child for this problem during Storm Uri. In Texas, the gas industry underperformed, but received huge rewards for underperformance and scarcity. Uh, Paula mentioned her organization is one of the few in Texas that is sticking up for its consumers who had 12,000 to 16,000 percent increases in the cost of gas for a five-day period. So you saw some gas suppliers earning $2.4 billion for a five-day uh, extreme event, uh, complete regulatory uh, breakdown there. And it is uh, not fixed. So th this will occur again in Texas and beyond. It's a huge, huge problem, and it needs a solution right away. Let's, uh, Rod, I'd like to look beyond Texas to the rest of the country, but including Texas. Uh, what do you see as technological fixes? When the public hears that they lost their electricity because a tree fell on a line, this seems rather primitive. This seems very almost uh, uh, not at all sophisticated to think that an entire electric system is subject to trees that might fall on it. Is there a technical fix? And what do you see going forward? Is, is putting the lines underground, for example, which people ask me about, a fix? Well, putting lines underground is certainly, is certainly a solution, but in most places where that's being proposed, it's, it's always being proposed in very densely populated, usually urban centers. And unfortunately, because of where they're located, you can run into a million dollars or more per mile of undergrounding lines. It becomes cost prohibitive because most Regulators don't want to put that burden on, on the local population for intermittent outages. And then let's not forget that, that resilience is still pretty much accomplished. 
when an event happens by human beings, by guys and women in trucks who go out and find, find what's happened and they fix it. Um, yes, they may use drones to help them more quickly locate an outage or they use uh, elements of smart grid technology where sensors can tell them more quickly you know, where a tree has fallen on a line, for example. But at the end of the day, it's still something that requires very skilled crews uh, to go out and risk their lives, frankly, to restore high voltage power lines and distribution lines in, in neighborhoods so that people can have their power. So there's, there's, there's only so much technology can do in sort of ensuring resilience. If we have storage closer to the point of usage, is that a solution or a partial solution? We hear a lot these days about microgrids, which suggest bringing everything closer to the customer. Well, microgrids will be a big trend going forward and uh, decentralization of the um, uh, energy resources, distributed energy resources, which include everything from uh, rooftop solar to uh, store energy storage and battery storage, all of these, uh, trends are going to accelerate in order to reduce uh, carbon emissions. But we do need tremendous technology development in terms of, um, of uh, prolonging the duration of energy storage. And Paula, on the same subject, I want to loop back to what you said at the beginning of the broadcast, and that is you said hydrogen uh, was a possible solution. Well, it's quite a long way off. We know the difficulties with that gas. Um, why would hydrogen do something that natural gas can't do today if we stored it closer to the place of use? Well, a, a couple of things. Um, hydrogen is probably, at, at this point, um, most economical when you can build it out in a, in a large scale, what we call a utility scale. So, so what you're, you know, the area that you're focused on is, is a distributed system and a microgridding system. I'm not quite sure hydrogen really fills that perspective. But the great thing about hydrogen is the emissions levels are, are minimal in comparison to uh, coal and gas. And so what it really speaks to is it gives you the high performance of base load generation and low cost. And that's why it's really the holy grail. If you really want to replace coal and gas, that's that's what's so attractive about it. But to your point on microgrids, um, yes, what we what we're strategizing here in San Antonio is more help, trying to help more and more large companies, large um, consumers of energy, um, manufacturing facilities, the airport here in San Antonio, the the uh, city of San Antonio, the government proper. Um, grocery store chains, uh, insurance companies, those that can microgrid off of the system when there's a problem. If they can get off of the system, produce their own power, then we can take any megawatts that we're able to produce in a crisis and send it straight to homes uh, for residents and for the average citizen. So it's kind of a way to divide and conquer the grid and take the pressure off and let us, when we have limitations in that generation, push it. But what I will say is what, what you know, what we're seeing is you have to customize a microgrid, I believe, to make it work. You have to figure out what's needed. And so at the airport, the airport can't really have blips, even blips in power. It'll, it'll take their baggage system offline. And a lot of times those are very hard to, re, you know, to restart those systems. So they need microgrids that have an element of 
base load generation, and they can do it with peakers, which is at least lower emitting uh, gas peakers. They're lower emitting than you would have um, in diesel. And, and I would say that we need to get away from diesel overall. But amazingly, a lot of institutions are still asking for diesel because of the price point. It's, it, um, they, they believe it's a cheaper way to do it, but it's more emitting. But if you put in a, a gas peaker or some backup system and you put in batteries to bridge any gl glitches that could be momentary or for a few minutes, and then you put in some renewable power and you create a microgrid that's self-sustaining, that's what some of the entities really need. They need small, what we call um, flexible power bundles to be able to have and meet all those different needs that happen as they're trying to operate. But the one, well, the one issue is if it's a physical issue, in other words, um, they, that microgrid could be in a position where there's damage. I mean, just like a car hit pole, Llewellyn, you said, look, um, if, a, if a line goes down, that's kind of archaic, but maybe somebody hit a car where the primary backup system is there and that damage occurs. So still that the physical nature of power that, that has to happen in the structure, there are those limitations. But in general, if you had microgrids all across San Antonio, we would be better off. Thank you. Uh, Rod, we haven't mentioned nuclear. That is a source of very steady supply and crisis on the generating side. And yet it doesn't seem to be involved in the resilience discussions. It, it, it is really amazing, Llewellyn, where we've come with nuclear, how, how little it's mentioned anymore as a 24-7 uh, source of clean carbon-free energy. But the fact is, uh, and Clint knows a lot about this, is that market forces in the past decade have resulted not in the expansion of our nuclear fleet, but in the closure. Of, of, of a handful of nuclear plants, and there are more that are still in danger because um, they're very costly to run uh, compared to a solar farm or a wind farm or even a gas plant. I mean, a state-of-the-art gas plant uh, might have a crew of maybe 20 or 30 people full-time, um, whereas a nuclear plant has a crew of maybe 1,000 people every day because they're working three shifts to keep that power on and include security personnel and PhDs who know atomic science. Um, and when you wrap into the cost of operating that nuclear plant, the cost that, that occurred after 9-11 and the cost that occurred after the Fukushima accident in, in, in Japan, um, these operators really need some relief in the market. But unfortunately, you know, the way free enterprise works is that if you're the most costly supplier of power, you're probably not going to get picked a lot. And so, I, I mean, nuclear has a, has a long road ahead. Uh, the hopes are being hung now on what they call small modular reactors, which are are maybe 100 megawatts or less, whereas a nuclear plant might be 2,000 megawatts today in operation. And they're about to build one of these SMRs in, a, I think, a national laboratory site in Idaho and to see how that works out, how long it takes to build it, how efficient it is. But it, it's going to take a decade or more to, at the pace this industry operates to figure out if this is actually a good solution for carbon-free electricity. That's our show for today. Thank you for coming along. Uh, and do remember, if you have chargeable devices, charge them when inclement weather is headed your way. Cheers. White House Chronicle is available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen. We are there.